Hey, it's Brian. In this episode of Heart to Heart, Mark and I spoke with Alex Smite, a Hollywood-bred talent who has worked in various roles within the industry. After an initial stint in acting, Alex's ceaseless curiosity led him to explore beyond the spotlight into the mesmerizing world of filmmaking. His experience includes work as an editor, producer, and director of major television hits such as CSI, Chicago Hope, and Criminal Minds. His insider perspective and practical insights make Alec an expert voice in the entertainment industry. Before you listen, you've got to grab our backstage pass. It's packed with Alec's top tips, insider advice, and additional resources that will give you a competitive edge. You can grab the backstage pass by going to podcastbackstagepass.com. Something has recently come up where it just is like, come on. Now, I don't know if you know this, but uh, it's so great to have you here. I'm going to hear your story. But, you know, just recently in Deadline, there's this article about uh, because of self-tapes. Right. You know, obviously, and this is great because, you know, you're a director. And you, in, in, according to what I've read about you, did you start off as an actor? Cause you, I did. Great. Because right. you understand, but you understand, it's like a, it's like when you're a baseball manager, if you start out as a player, you'll always remember those days. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which is 100%. great to draw from. There's like an article written about some complaints that because it's primarily now a self-tape industry where, you know, you're submitting your auditions through self-tape. That some, I don't want to say actors, I'll say some people are speaking out about the, it's unfair that you know, we're not going in the audition room. Mm-hmm. And as a result, there's a, a casting director in the industry that, they were, that was pointed out that's offering as an alternative space to go to that, you know, charges a fee if you would like, if you don't have the professional space at home where, you know, you can to put self-tank. on, do self-tape. So, of course, I, I figured somebody was yeah. going to do that. <laughs> it's like, it was inevitable. Yeah. So there's huge uproar. People are speaking, this is unfair. You know, they're taking our money again, blah, blah, blah. And as a result, because actors are speaking out about this now, and, it, and it's so funny because a lot of people don't realize that one-on-one has a lot of classes that are taught by filmmakers, directors like yourself, showrunners, which is so great because now showrunners, the directors... Uh, the filmmakers, they're not canceling, but some of the casting directors are saying, hey, because the actors are complaining that there's a fellow casting director that's charging money for self-tape space, even though my my class is coming up in three days from now, to be fair to the actor, I need to cancel my class because it wouldn't be right for the actor. We're like, what are you talking about? They like rearrange their schedule. They're committed to taking a class where that starts in like a few days and you're just going to cancel your class just like that. And here we go again. So, you know, they're like, yeah, we're doing it because we don't want the actors further upset with us. And I'm like, wait a second. You don't think they're going to get upset that you're canceling the <laughs> class that they've, they've already paid for? <laughs> yeah. and they've already, not forget paid for, but they've, they've made arrangements for. And then you're going to manipulate this and tell us, oh, it's for the good of the actor. That you, anyway, you know, you get a little fed up with this kind of stuff. Yeah. So have you, are you familiar with this article that came out? No, but yeah. It doesn't surprise me actually, because I mean, we started like, like probably the last class or two I, I taught, we were talking, or we talked about self-taping because it was becoming more and more of a thing, even pre-COVID. Yes. Uh, you know, I, the last couple of jobs I've done, almost all the casting was done looking at videotapes and, you know, or pre-recorded auditions and it's just i miss uh, being in the room being able to give an out everybody something you yeah. know and i and that's the, the feedback from doing that is important because if you give a note and you see what happens sometimes it's a really 
positive and sometimes it's exactly the same thing. And as a director, that tells me something that they're, you know, it's either a performance that's just by rote or if they can pivot and try something different, even if it's off base, it's like that, just seeing that kind of movement in a, you know, in an audition means a lot to me. And hearing this from you, who's a, who's a director, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's so great to, to hear that just because, you know, look, we live in a world where no matter whether you're an actor, whether you're a businessman or any kind of, there's always going to be those people that look for groups. There are always those people that are going like, hey, look, the world has changed. I got to run with it. Yeah. Now, we all want to be back in the room, and, you know, but um, it's amazing how COVID threw us all yeah, in. And I think that it's, you know, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. I was reading an article this morning in uh, the American Cinema Editors magazine about working from home. And it's just, it, COVID thing sort of accelerated all that, just like it, I think it did with self-tape. But it's one of those things that may not go go away. That's there right. Is some version of it. I don't think it's going to go back to the way that it was. And at least in post-production, the hybrid version now seems to be like, I have a lot of friends that are the cut dailies at home and then go in and work with a showrunner director. Yeah. Room, which makes sense to me. Cause when you're just cutting dailies, I don't see the point. And I mean, there's no interaction anyways. Everybody's half the time, the productions are somewhere else. So that kind of thing, I think, that push forward because of COVID, but that won't go away. Yeah, no, you, and you know what? Listen, as you know, life throws curveballs and people either react to them by just going with the curveball or saying, this is not fair, blah, blah, blah. So as a director, you know, I'm sure you've had <laughs> Sorry. stories. Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, that's I just have to put that out there. Uh, I was like, that's no, my not, I, 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 I love it when my dog does that. <laughs> you know, I'm sure you've had a lot of curveballs come your way in life. Like, okay, you started off as an actor. Right. You went to Minnesota? University Sorry. of Minnesota. But just there for a year. Cool. Yeah. Now, did you go to grad school for directing? No, I, uh, when I started as an actor, I was also making Super 8 films. It's sort of that classic story. So I had like feet in both camps. I was always fascinated by production and learning how to shoot and all that. I fell in love with acting. My mom taught an acting class as a volunteer at Lock High when I was a kid. And I had a day off from school and I just went with her and ended up doing improv with all these high school kids. And that, that was so because your family was in the industry. They were. Yeah. Oh, you're so I guess technically now I'm a Nepo baby. Wow. Used to be a second generation Hollywood now it's a Nepo baby. Well, okay, so your dad, what did he do? He was a, well, he started as an actor and then was a director. For director for uh he started in live television. Get out, like can you get can you give somebody uh, Yeah, he worked on like Playhouse Ninety. Oh my god, all, you know. Playhouse Ninety in the States. It's yeah. huge. And then moved on to features and uh did a lot of television, did Twilight Zones. Oh, get out of here. The old black and white one. Yeah, the old black yeah. and white one. Oh There's my one God. with Jack Gordon when he's on a planet and they they send a oh female robot God. to be his companion. That's incredible. That was my dad's. They, they were some of the most incredible episodes. It and, was and, a great show. And you know, you talk about an isolated show where back then, anybody who got on that show, you know, like in other words, I saw like like Robert Redford's Robert Redford, first big break. Yeah. And he had this little role, you know, and, and if you made that show, a star was born. Like it was, a, a, I mean, it was a nice marriage of like wonderful. This is before my time. Oh, but yeah. as a kid, I mean, heard black and white. So I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. As, a, yeah. as a kid, when I would watch these shows, yeah, they reran them like crazy. That's how I was, saw. Them. I think it's one of my all-time favorite half-hour shows. Well, there were short stories. Yeah, and short they stories. Didn't have a lot of money, and so the, which actually led to a lot of creativity. I think production-wise, things that they just couldn't do a lot, so they were very creative. It had it, it was very theatrical. And your mom was an actress. She was an actress, and when 
the family started, she stopped acting. Oh God! Wow. And, uh, yeah. So you grew up with him as your dad. Uh, was he was he around enough, or was he was he? You know, he gone? was on location a bit. Yeah. Know, but I actually lived in London for nine months when I was fourteen, and he was doing a film for Universal. It was a TV movie. It was a Frankenstein: The True Story with Leonard Whiting and. James Mason. It was a great, it was like a four hour thing. And so I was there the whole time. And once school ended, I went to the set every day. And that's sort of when I really. It's, it's good you did, because I was going to ask you when you were in London, you, you get in trouble. No, I went to work with my dad that's every day. Great. Yeah. Yeah. And that was when I really sort of fell in love with filmmaking. Sorry, you're 14 with your dad every day. Then you come back to the States with your dad to California. Right. Okay. And, and did a lot of theater. I was. Uh, Still in junior high. high yeah, a lot of high school, junior high, high school theater, summer theater. Where did you live in California? Uh, Brownwood. Okay, Brownwood. Yeah. So then what made you go to cold Minnesota? Well, both my parents had gone there, but they have a, they, at least they did then, a really wonderful drama. Oh, yeah. And, and they have a great theater. Yeah, they have a great theater. Oh, Guthrie yeah. Theater. The, Guthrie, yeah. the Guthrie's there. Yeah. It's a pretty thriving space for and, uh, and, regional theater. And who's the actor who, like, he's very, you know, he's his own theater, you know, like, uh, you know, he's in the, uh, Dumb and Dumber. Jeff, oh, uh, yes. He's uh, been there too. Yeah. And he has his own theater. I think so. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, uh, Jeff really, good, really good theater in Minnesota. Yeah. Jeff Daniels. Yeah, a lot yeah. of theater there. So I thought, you know, I was there and Carnegie Mellon was the other place I'd applied to, but I got into Minnesota, which was sort of my number one choice. Oh, so you, you, you have a 10 or 15 year old who comes to you now. Hey, I'm thinking about going to Minnesota for theater slash filmmaking. Would you say go? That's such a tough question because yeah. in my case, I mean, I can't really relate it to my own personal experience because I almost got cast in a uh, sitcom right before I left to go off to college. So I was really torn. I wanted to take a year off and I was discouraged. For, I'll just put it that way. Oh. My parents. Yeah, yeah. So they were active doing even in high school. Yeah. So they put their foot down. They said, you're going to come. on. And so I kind of didn't, I wanted to take, it would be, yeah. You, you were got to figure the rest of it out. Yes, <laughs> but I was disappointed. Okay. So I ended up coming back after my first year and trying to get an acting career going. And I got, you know, the odd date here and there kind of thing. And I realized pretty quickly that I missed the other side of it, having been exposed to it when I was growing up. Here's the curveball. Here's the curveball. And it's the same thing with theater, because when you do a play, you start from the beginning and everybody's sitting around a table. And up until finishing it, you know, when it's presented. And I missed like coming in for a day or two on a TV show or kind of a thing. I just missed the engagement from top to bottom. And I think that's why I drifted into filmmaking from that at that point. Oh, so you drifted into filmmaking. What's your first big break? Well, I was going to go back to school. I, re I applied at USC to get into film school. I got in and I was going to start in the when the semester was going to start. Yeah. And I... A family friend was a film editor, and I wanted to focus on film editing. So before I was going to go back to school, I was working at night at the what was then the Westwood Playhouse. It's now the uh, Geffen. And I said, do you mind if I just hang out and watch you during the day? He said, no, no problem. So I would go to his cutting room during the day and watch him cut and go to work at night. And he got a big movie, which was the jazz singer that you'll die Oh, my God, yes. And he he offered me a job. He said, do you want to, there's nobody on the availability list as an apprentice and I'm going to be an apprentice. And so I had to, that was another curveball. It's like, well, do I do that? Or do I go to just go back to school? Which was my uh, initial plan. And you said, yes. Yeah. He told me, he goes, look, I'm not trying to push you, but 
this is the job you're going to want to get when you get out of film school. Wow. wow. So I was really too young to make that decision, but, but you did it. I did. And that was, that's how I started my career. What do you think that the, you know, the impetus of before you went to undergrad, you, know, you had that uh, sitcom, your parents obviously control, you know, they had more control then. So they said, no, you're going to college. And you know, you, you were disappointed and you went to college, but do you think that it made it easier to say yes then? Because you know, that that's a tough, Decision, USC Film School, yeah. taking this job. Yeah, I mean, I it was I pretty dead set on going to, going to film school, yeah. trying to start my... But I was focused on editing as a way to... As a pathway to becoming a director. When looking back, would you say that was one of the best decisions you made? I absolutely Yeah. Did. Because there are tons of things that what may not have happened. Like That's meeting right. my wife and all That's, kinds yeah. of other oh, things. Wow. Yeah. So once you made that decision and you took that job, then it seems like did one thing lead to another, to another, to another? Is that how it happened? Yeah, and it's weird because there was a moment after a year or so of being like a apprentice and then an assistant editor that I actually toyed with wanting to get back into acting again. Then I got a job that I just loved, and that was it. What was the job? I'm trying to remember now. I really have to wrap my brain. But it was uh, just an AE job on a show that I really had a lot of fun on and with an editor that was super encouraging. And I just got, you know, I was kind of hooked at that point. And it was probably that, that thing that happened to you when you were younger, made you want to be an actor that came back that you were like, you know, you were around, you were like, Hey, I want to try to, yeah. maybe I'll think. but you know, the thing is it led you to directing. So it's, it's, it's interrelated. I, in my original life plan, it was going to go a little faster, but it's not the same for everyone. It's, yeah. It's different for everybody. I mean, I was a, I'm a good editor. I was and am. And, um, so I was busy and a lot of people kept me working and, it just took a little bit longer. You know, the pathway for me was episodic. You get on a show and then you have to sort of build up that trust level to ask for that opportunity. And I had a couple moments where I did and I, everybody was super positive and then the, the show would be canceled or, or somebody would leave and they'd be gone. You start all over again. So it just took getting on the right show to finally get an opportunity to direct. Hey, it's Brian. I'm dropping in on an important announcement. What you need to know is you have more control over your career than you think. The thing standing between you and the career you want is your connections. And that's where one-on-one -on -one next level comes in. If you are not a member yet, you can apply to join at oneononenextlevel.com. Press pause and do that now. If you are already a member and you are ready to get back on track, we want to invite you to book a strategy session with us led by myself personally. We will help you prioritize which classes make the most sense given your career goals. You can find these under the resource hub in your account portal. We can't wait to hear your success story. I became friendly with someone that taught a class here. He was a filmmaker and his name was Gary Winnick. And um, I don't know if you know, he, he's at Charlotte's Web. And he, but at that time, he had done his first independent film when I met him, which was 25 years, what, 20 something years ago, right? And he, so I recruited him to teach a class of one on one. And he told me that the one thing, and he went to AFI. Okay. And he was friends with some other directors that now have, you know, gone on to some really impressive credits. But he told me that the one thing he regretted in film school that they did not teach. They were so good with the technical element, but they didn't they didn't teach you so much as how to work with actors. Oh, I, absolutely. That's uh, I, which is one of the reasons that I ended up wanting to do this. So you must be Brian. so good because because you you know the fact that you started out as an actor, you have that understanding. Well, I I like actors, yeah. you know, and so many people I've worked with, and I'm not going to name any names, are scared of actors. Mm -hmm. 
they don't know what they don't know how to have that conversation. I mean, well, actors are famous famous for saying, you know, like they go on set and the director like doesn't really they're like afraid and they don't like want to approach them. Yeah, yeah, I've only been in the audition room with Alec, but he's just like a bright. He's like beaming. Like, Thank you. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm happy to be there, which isn't the case for most of them. Most of them are just like well, so I, and it's it's odd, but I think and you might have hit the nail right there, Mark, because I think they teach everything but that. There, there's a wonderful um, class that I took when I got my opportunity to direct, and I did bit years since I'd done the acting. There's an acting for directors class that I took. Yeah, it was a blast. And it also just reminded me, kind of grounded me again in the whole process. It was here in LA. It was, uh, what's her name? No, I know. I know. And it was a great class and I had so much fun and I was determined to go in there and just go for it because the first day, you know, I was going to volunteer for everything. Be the first one to get up on stage. It was like, I'm just going to break the ice. It had been a long time since I'd done any kind of performing. But it just reminded me how vulnerable an actor is, which I think is a really important thing for filmmakers to remember when they're talking to them. You know? Yeah, and, and you, the other thing that yeah, I remember Gary telling me, unfortunately, he's no longer with us. He passed away. But the, the one thing he said was, he said, as a film director, meaning him, he said, you know, I actually, what actors need to know, and he, he taught this in his classes, that I'm looking to them for the answers. In other words, when I'm auditioning them, I have in my head maybe what the character should be. But he goes, a lot of times the actor will come in the room and reteach me on who that character, you know, just the way they're playing it. And he said, so a lot of times actors, because they're so used to stage directors telling them stage left, stage right, do this, do that. Right. They don't realize that when it comes to the film director, a lot of times, you know, he it, it's such a collaborative effort. He or she is looking for the actor to bring to the table the cast. Yeah. I mean, it, I always looked at, you know, well, there, it's an old cliche, but casting is 95% of, I think, of of making any kind of film. Yeah. But especially with television, because the, the at least on the director's side, the gestation period is so quick. You get a script and seven days later, you're on the set. Uh, for me, the first time we have a casting uh, session and I hear that those the dialogue spoken by so, a human being, it just changes everything. That's what and it does for the writers too, because they're all, you know they're at least all the sessions I was ever in, the writers are there, and you kind of look at each other like maybe we'll tweak that. I mean, there's some rewriting that gets done at that stage as well. But I agree. I think what's somebody going to bring? You know, let me see. Maybe they'll change my mind about what I what I thought this character was going to be. So then, part two, which has to do with you, is he showed me a huge book on his last film he had done, where he did frame, he drew pictures with a pencil, frame by frame of every single shot he wanted to take for That's that film. Did his own storyboard. What is he said, Mark? One of the keys to filmmaking, besides what you said, is number one, the piece of writing you choose. If it's a really good writer, it makes it a lot easier. Right. Number two. If the actor, you choose a really good actor, now 99% of your work is done. But he said a lot of directors make, in his opinion, the mistake of not being specific ahead of time and prepared for the shots. Yeah. So he would have every single shot. And he said as an editor, right? Like the editors are, are the, they're the lin, I don't want to say linchpin, kingpin, but they're the ones who really make the film because you know, obviously, it's all in the editing as far as what the frame by frame yeah. kind of showed its own story. Yeah. So, as an editor, 
How much has filmmaking, has that helped your filming? Oh, a hundred percent. I mean, it was a great place to learn the craft uh, the, of directing, at least in terms of breaking apart a scene and shooting it and being able to tell the story visually. So, and it also helped me tremendously because television schedules are so tight. Yes. And I knew like if I was really under the gun and it happened a couple of times where some crazy curveball would happen, and all of a sudden we have to be out of a location an hour earlier than we thought. I know what I have to have. And I knew what I could eliminate and still shoot the scene and have it work. So that's the trick. Sometimes people get hung up on doing this gorgeous master and they'll do six takes of a shot that you're going to use, for, you know, maybe one or two cuts. And then by the time you get down to doing singles and world, like a lot of the meat is, you have no time left. And that's happened a lot. I mean, it happened to me on the receiving end as an editor and I clocked all that. Like, I'm not going to let that happen. You got to get the cake before you do the frosting. It sounds like you created your own film school from being on set. Being an Well, I, I mean, I got to see everything. I saw directors that were not great. I saw wonderful directors and collaborated with all of them. I just, it was a great place to soak up sort of everything that I needed in my toolkit until you do it yourself and then it starts all over again. And then the shot by shot thing, you know, it's like in Stanislavski, in general is the enemy of all art. The more specific you are, Absolutely. Does that make you a better director? Yeah. And when I, you know, what I do, I, I'm a terrible artist, so I couldn't draw, I can't draw storyboards, but I would do a plan view of my sets and the, I would block the scene in my head and then figure that out. And then I, based on that, I would dissect the shots that I was going to need. And I'd make a shot list, also a shot list that was based on directions, which saves time. Because you know how that is. If you flip a room, you got to move all the lights. So I would make sure everything gets cleaned up in one direction. So I was real efficient in terms of doing those kind of things so that my production day was smooth. And the crews love that because they, they'll look at you like, what are we doing next? And I had an answer every time. Or, you know, after this scene's done, we're going to be down that hallway looking this way. So let's get started moving stuff out of the way, that kind of thing. Because time is everything on a set. Was, was your dad able to like, you know, come to you? I'd like see your success. Well, and kind of like, the sad thing is he passed away like literally the year before I got my first show to direct. But he, I mean, my editing career was thriving by the time, you know, we were both communicating and talking about talking shop. So that was fun. How old were you when you got your first like? Direct? I was in the mid 40s. I'm trying to think of what year it was. Oh, six, I think. So I was probably 45. That's when life begins. Yeah. Well, you know, I was telling somebody this the other day that as anxious as I was to, to get an opportunity and start directing earlier, as a dad, I think it was probably the best thing that ever happened. Because yes. by the time I did, my kids were old enough that it wasn't like I was going to miss key birthdays or things like that. And I, if I was shooting till two in the morning, it was okay. Uh, and if I'd been going on location and doing all those kind of things when they were little, I think in the long run, it would have not been the best thing as a human being and a father. Your, your body work like, uh, which includes like CSI and criminal minds. If there was a secret sauce to actors, when, when an actor you work with uh, comes on your set, you know, are there certain actions that a really exceptional actor takes that, you're, that makes your life easier than you can share with us? I think the one thing that I always try to do is first of all, open a dialogue early. You know, I always reach out, like if, I, if somebody's cast, I reach out to them before that first day on the set, because anybody that's been a guest actor walking onto a, especially an established show, like 
both those two shows, uh, which I did the bulk of, of my work, I did 46 episodes of CSI. So that's intimidating when you walk onto a set on a show that's been running for six, seven years. Everybody knows each other. It's a shorthand and you're only there for three days. Right. So I always tried to extend uh, Olive Branch early and say, can't wait to get to you. You're going to love the crew. Everybody's great. So that we've already opened up the dialogue. And I, for me, it's just listening. Somebody has questions. I'm wide open to do that. And, you know, I know where some directors can get frustrated because there's so many things going on. There's so many moving parts to a production day, but you have to take, you have to stop and take the time to talk to an actor, you know, and just break down the scene a little bit if they have questions. And if not, if you have a gentle uh, note or something you want them to try. But if you've, if you've started that dialogue early, it's much easier and they'll trust you, you know, and, be, and you have to know the story. That's the other thing. As a director coming into a show that had been running, the actors will test you a little bit. They want to make sure you know what the script is about or what their characters are. And if they sense that you don't, you, people can lock up on you. So it's like a substitute teacher or something. It's like a substitute it. teacher. Yeah. So I always made sure I did all my homework. I was super prepared. Then it surprised me. You know why? I saw your, your, your birthday is obviously in September. They're August. 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 Yeah. End of August. End of August. Yeah. You're a Virgo. Yeah. And out of, you know, out of all signs on the Zodiac, I'm not an ultra Zodiac guy, out of all the signs of the Zodiac, Virgo is the most organized. It, I know so my, my son's also Virgo. He's born the next day. Yeah. So, so to be a director, I think to be a good director, like what we were talking about previously with Gary, is that you know you're the more organized and prepared you are, the better. I think so. Yeah. I mean, prepar- and the thing is, you also have to be prepared to just if something happens, roll with it. Yeah. Roll with because it. when you have that preparation, do you know what I mean? Then whatever whatever happens. It's not like you have to go to a book in your head. Mm-hmm. You just know what to do. Yeah. Right? You coffee. Yeah. And what I what I always tend to do is um, once, you know, I have my own time to, uh, to break down the script and I'll start doing my shot list. The first thing I do, I call it a cheat sheet, is I'll go through the script right away and I'll make a list of what the key thing that happens in the scene, where everybody is and which characters are in it. And I do that immediately. And by transferring from reading the script to writing it down using both sides of your brain. I've got the story in my head really quickly because every, I think every question that gets asked ultimately relates to story. So the quicker I can get that done, the better. And then that's a nice thing to have handy because before we do scene 10, I'll take a look at that before the actors come on set for rehearsal and go and just remind them like, you know, Brian, you were the last time we saw you, you just found out whatever, or you don't know who this person is yet. Just to reset, because you have to keep the story in your head, and you know the production you shoot out of order. It's it's so funny you say that, because it it's true that we're all interested in the story. Even my friend, I, and I went to school with this guy who directed the recent Superman. He was the director. Oh, wow. And he, he it's, he's online even saying this. He said, directing a Super Bowl is all about telling stories. Yeah. You show you show the player on the sideline that's upset because he just dropped a pass. Or you show the coach yelling at the... He goes, this is what the audience wants to see. Yeah, storytelling. I mean, it really does. Even sporting events, everything breaks down to that. I think that's what's compelling. And so interesting because you've you know, you taught first in New York in person and LA in person at our old space and online via Zoom. So I don't want to give away all the, you know, the secrets of your class. However, <laughs> you have like so much experience. I know, you know, editors sometimes in classes, workshops, when they teach actors how to 
perform on set and stuff. They go, hey, like if you give it to this, maybe the casting director will love it. Maybe the director will love it, but the editor will hate you because you did this <laughs> and that. But you bring kind of like so much like a 360 Well, experience. actually, it's interesting because the classes that I've done with you guys uh, over the years, a lot of you want actors know that I've been an editor, then there's questions about that. Like, well, what about matching? And, you know, so I, which is everybody's so hung up on that, but I, and it's not under control anyway. It's not. And what I try to tell everybody is, you know, when you're doing like a wide master, what as a director, I'm watching just to try to get the pace and the feel of it. You know, I'm not as concerned about getting the best performance in that shot. You're not going to, it's almost like a rehearsal. But then I, what I try to tell them is when something's feeling right, and I think we hit that, let's do one more. Once you kind of settle on a performance in a scene, then try to be as consistent as you can, but don't get freaked out about, you know, yeah. if you put your glasses down, one right. word. I mean, that'll get people thinking, and the minute you do that, you, you're not in the moment and you're not playing the scene. That's such a good, that's such a good, because I think, yeah, a lot of actors do kind of worry about that. Yeah. I mean, you know, you don't want to do egregiously mismatched things, but just sort of you know, as you refine kind of how you're going to move through the space and do things, try to stay, once everybody's happy with a version of that, then they try to be consistent there. And since most of our uh, listeners, watchers are, uh, you know, are, are members or actors, is there anything they can do in the audition room and on set to kind of stick out? Because we've had, we've had a few other TV directors on our podcast and they always talk about how, you know, they have lists of actors that they just love and want to like feed to the showrunner or, or the casting to bring back over and over again. Like, I'm sure a lot of our actors are like, what can I do, you know, in the room with the director or, you know, when I actually book the job on set to be well, one of those. Well, one of the things I touched on and do when I've been doing these classes is try to find, even if it's a small scene, try to find some place in, within that dialogue or whatever where you can make some sort of a turn because that's what I'm looking for. If it's just a straight, flat, not flat, but just, a, you know, kind of a one-note performance, I'm always looking for some little quirky thing or some, even if it's not something that would ever end up in the show, just because it shows me that there's an actor that Human. can have a little fun. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then usually if I get a sense that somebody's got that and they didn't quite do it, that's when I'll, I'll give an adjustment, you know, yeah. just to see what happens. It's so much fun to watch humanness. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and you're not locked into any of those kind of things. Like I've had that conversation with writers too, where somebody will come in and I'll give it out and they'll try something and it's a little bit different than what will probably end up in the show. And then, yeah, but that wasn't exactly what, you know, should happen. And my answer is always, well, this is a, it's an audition. We're just trying to find out, trying to find a good exactly. actor. That's right. You know, it's find a good it. actor. They'll do whatever we need them to do. Yeah, you know? that's right. Hammer. Or you see like, I mean, we know, like you love actors, like, you know, might be like kind of one of your favorite parts about being on set is that interaction. But any any pet peeves, any anything like that? Should you know? I'll set. tell you what. The only time I've and not had an issue, but when it's been a little uncomfortable is when actors are really overly concerned about their performance and not letting me do your thing, do my thing. How can that? And they're going, I'm, "I'm bad. This is really oh, bad." Oh, they'll, they'll, they'll say that to you. Yeah, oh, like yeah, that's like terrible. And it's like or, you know what? Don't get all wrapped around the axle about that. If it's, if I think we need to do it again, I'll let you know. But if I think it was good, you know, and then trust me, yeah. it's just that. And it's just, it's usually just an insecurity. And which I totally understand. We all have insecurities. Yeah. And yeah. so that I do my absolute best to try to make everybody super comfortable so that that's not, that doesn't creep in. But that, that's probably the only, not a pet peeve, but if there's anything, any advice I could give an actor, it's like, get out of your own way sometimes. Don't, 
you know, let there are there are people there that will let you know if you're off the rails. Hey folks, Brian here. Mark and I often cringe when people call one-on-one -on -one next level a workshop studio because we are so much more than that. You and I both know that not all workshop studios are the same. And I can tell you with complete confidence that no other studio offers the same level of care or programming that we do. And we do so with pride. Here's just a few examples. I'm Emily, and before one-on-one -on -one Next Level, I was in a super dark place in my career. I tried a lot of things to find representation, but nothing seemed to work, and I felt invisible. Then, almost as a Hail Mary, I signed up for a manager session. It was incredible, but it was also the thing to land me a manager. Since then, I booked a national commercial, I've gone on to create a thriving voiceover career and signed with an agent, all through these classes and programs. One-on-one -on -one Next Level has been the single most important thing that's influenced my acting career and life in so many ways. I'm Neil. In the last year, I booked two co-stars and one top-of-show guest star on major TV series. I also shot my first lead in a feature film. In fact, I've hit 20 big milestones thanks to the connections that I've made in classes at One-on-One -on -one Next Level. The key has been getting in front of casting directors. And that's why I love One-on-One -on -one Next Level. If you're not a member yet, what are you waiting for? Every actor deserves face time with the people in the business who can move your career forward. And One-on-One -on -one Next Level can help you do that. Did you know One-on-One -on -one Next Level produces over 335 events and classes each month? Whether you join us in person or attend on Zoom, you can meet with A-list casting directors, filmmakers, TV showrunners, and executive producers, as well as agents and managers when you become a member. These days, it's harder and harder to get real face time with industry pros, but one-on-one -on -one Next Level makes it possible. To become a member, visit www.oneononenextlevel.com and click join. We can't wait to hear your success story. We might have to edit this question now, but like, uh, well, <laughs> what you say is, is uh, you know, all the things you directed, is there something that's been a favorite of yours? How oh, that's a, that is a tough one. Yeah. There's too many shows now. Yeah. Is there something that comes to mind first when you're thinking? Um, yeah, I did an episode uh, about a hoarder oh, that my gosh. found Get for CSI, and that was fascinating. Not only did, did I learn a lot about that whole thing, but I had a wonderful Annie uh, Worshing who just passed away, actually, uh, was the lead in that and played the expert. And it was just a really nice, small episode of CSI that was very, I, I, I enjoyed it. It brought both things together. There were some really visually interesting things we did. But it was really just a small, like a three-hander. You know? When you say you learned a lot, what would you say you learned a lot about? About the psychology. Of yeah, because it. it's fascinating how yeah. you know we all want to saving this, saving this. Next thing you know, their, their entire apartment or house is... Well, it's all based on emotional attachment. To I love, like I love. People will say, you know, this pen has no ink left. And it's like, well, yeah, but that was the pen that my husband used to write my birthday card or something. So they can't get rid of it. And apparently the... Well, not apparently. It's true that, you know, they bring, you know, we've watched those shows where they come in and help somebody and they clear everything up. It's like a year later, it's right back where. I think even that woman who invented the whole whatever methods for decluttering or recon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she admitted she also does it or something. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. You're saying this because, you know, a lot of actors are taught, okay, so you learn technique, right? And then when you get on set, you know, you prepare, and then you throw it all away and just do it. Yeah. And it's so true because if you're in your head thinking about, well, now I have to do this, what I have to do, you know, it's going to show. Yeah. So that expression is like, let it go. Even in life, right? When we let things go, we have to trust that what we learned 
is going to kick in. You can't do two things at the same time when you're you trying go. to. And like, you can't be in the now. You can't, can't be in the now. now. And and for me too, like the the other side of it, other than being an actor on the set, is I do all my prep work. I do my shot list. I rarely ever look at it again. Get out on the set because I it's in my head. And then I'll get there, and if I see something, you know, it's one thing to walk through the space and figure out where I want to put everybody. But if I get there and see something different, I could flip my blocking. I know what I need to get. So those kind of things are fun. I, I'm not scared of that kind of curveball getting thrown at me because I know I can think on my feet and and get it shot. No, you so, know what's funny? I, we had a little bit the LA trip, and I used to have this introductory speech written down. In the beginning, I used to read it, you know, and I said, screw it. Because you like, know it. I'm going to look at it, and then I'm just like what yeah. you talked about. And it's so much more colorful. The reactions were so much better when you, okay, you're not going to hit every freaking paragraph, but when you do it that way, everybody connects. And I felt it. So, and I had uh, I had an experience early, pretty early in my directing career where there was a director who had a, a health issue on like a Thursday night. It's the nightmare or the scary dream every director has. So I got a call in the middle of the night telling me you're directing tomorrow. Oh, and I'm my like, okay, Ooh. not my show. And I just showed up on the set and it's like, well, I can figure this out. I had no plan because I didn't know what, I had no idea what was on the You didn't even read the script. I had, well, I happened to, I knew the story, oh. but I didn't know what they were going to shoot the next day. I just showed up. Wow. Was CSI? Yeah. That CSI. must have been an accomplished feeling. Yeah, well, it's like, once you get through that, it's like, okay, you I, yeah, yeah. Throw, throw me a curveball. I feel that way here. I was like, no, no, you know, it's funny. My mom just visited me, right? And without her, I could have never done anything. Because if I could get something by my mom, I can start a business in the prison. You know what I mean? Deal with landlords. Yeah. So it's, it's really funny. Once you once you get through that um, experience of going to that set like you did, it was confidence building because yeah. I, I had no choice. I just had to I had to do it. And but luckily it was on the show I'd been doing, so the crew knew me, you know, and I kind of slipped in and I'm like, oh, what are we doing today? What are we shooting? <laughs> you know, you say CSI is where you felt like I've made it as a director. Like that's well, I'll tell you what, it's a, you get that first opportunity and it, it's the second one that's the one that makes you feel a little bit better. Yeah. A lot of people do one show, but they oh, they were happy. I got asked back and then yeah. I started directing all the time. Wow. So yeah, that, was, that was the most flattering thing for me was that they believed in me and gave me the opportunity and then I, you know, proved them right, I guess. And the other thing is what, what our audience can learn too is that, you know, listen, when you get more than one shot, you know you're going to get more, you're looser, right? I mean, yeah. the first time it's like, it's all or nothing. Yeah, I hope it goes well. When you know you're going to do, when you, hey, you're asked back, hey, I can be a little looser. Yeah. And you just feel like, okay, we're all doing this together. And it's very, that was, I mean, I was kind of asked for a better situation. It was a really supportive group. I'd been there since the beginning. I cut the pilot. You know, I was surrounded by people that wanted me to succeed, but, um, you know, you still have to do it. And there, there, I know a lot of people that have come out of the cutting room that once they're on the set or if they've been given an opportunity, they don't always, not everybody likes it. It's a different world. Yeah. You know, I was, I had, had a leg up because I obviously spent time on the set growing up. But one of the things I've always encouraged people in the editorial world is go to the set, you know, go spend it, go up to the set for half an hour. When, especially when you're up shooting, you know, if you're on a, a lot and you're there. When I was in New York, um, I did some editing there and it was, we were you know, on the West Village and they were shooting at Greenpoint. And it was such a weird 
you know, I'd never worked in a situation like that in post. I was always a, on the lot. No. Uh, you know, so oh, we, wow. the, the other show I did was in a store. They shot at a story and they were downstairs. So every day I would go to the set. Was that gossip? Uh, not gossip, bro, because that was COVID. Oh, okay. It was uh, Tommy was the one in Astoria. And then the year before was Instinct with Alan Cumming. Wow. And that That's was where we were in the West Village. I never wow. saw anybody. This was pre-COVID. No, nobody ever came into the cutting room. So as a director, because you've been an editor, do you, do you kind of see to it that you go into the editing? I always have, and I've always encouraged people, just go up to the set. Tell it, Let the director know that you're looking at dailies. But you go into the editing room. After yes, show. you do. Yeah. Oh yeah. Wow. So does the editor ever get like upset that you're right next to him, or is that? <laughs> well, no, I don't. I mean, I keep a hands okay, off. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> that was a learning curve for me. Was how to because you know, so much. Up. Yeah, and so much of what I did and do as an editor, I don't articulate because you, I'm just doing it. And so I had to learn how to give notes in a way that made sense. And I was lucky because on CSI, a lot of the people that were cutting had come up under me when I was there as an editor before I started directing. So they all knew me and trusted me and they knew I wasn't gonna go in there. You know, I wanted everybody to look good. So then as a director, do you feel like the editor sometimes still has a, a big say in how the story comes out? Yeah, I mean, I, I encourage people when they're cutting my material, I don't wanna see stuff, finish your episode. Wow. And I'll look at the whole thing. Obviously if you ever looked at the whole thing and then said, you know what? Can you change a little bit of this and that or no? Yeah, I mean, sometimes it'll be my, the way I approach it because you have four days in the cutting room when you're a director. For TV. For TV. So what I try to do is in the over the first two days, just make sure that, you know, if there's anything that I need to sort of smooth out, you know, just the big strokes. And then the second two days, I'll start diving in a little bit deeper and look at some other takes and start fiddling with, you know, timing, like really fine tuning, all those kind of things. And I found that was the most efficient for me instead of starting and just like trying to go through a scene all the way and then move to the next thing. You just don't move forward. And I want to give the editor a chance to, you know, interpret my notes. Are there certain editors, if I were a filmmaker like you, or a director, uh, do, you, do you request certain editors that you start to get a comfort level? Well, everybody, everybody likes to do oh, that. Okay, gotcha. <laughs> but sometimes you don't have a choice. Yeah, but, but, but you can. You can. Actually, Mark, that kept me from directing for a year, and I won't name names, but okay. I was, because I was the one everybody wanted to do their show, I they sort of kept me down for another year to make sure I could cut everybody's shows. I found that out afterwards. Of course. Do you feel but, like you yeah. can sometimes be pigeonholed like, because of that? No, 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 no. I think I mean, it, it, ultimately it was like, well, it's, I mean, it's flattering, yeah, but it flattering. at the same time, it's like, we all sort of knew each other. It's like, you know, it's like, you know but what are you going to, there's nothing you can do about that. It just is what it is. Yeah. And I can't complain now. Because yeah. Well, look at you, you have a body of work now, you look past on you're like, all right, so. And how have we not mentioned you have like Emmy nominations? Yeah. Well, yes, thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, wait, well, like, I mean, you know what? Share with us what it's like to go to the Emmys. It's a lot of fun, but it's three times a bridesmaid. Okay, uh, and, still. Well, actually six times, because the same years I was nominated for Emmys, I was also nominated for Ace Award, the American Cinema Editors. I just want to hear, so, right, so you, first of all, for the Emmy uh, day, do, do they pick you up on one of those stretch limos? I'm trying to, you know, know, it's to remember because we went three times and, you know, they're, it's, it's, those were the creative arts oh, yeah. awards still, yeah, 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 for editorial. Yeah. And, uh, but, but they were, it's a blast. I mean, there's the full, yeah, yeah, it's the whole deal. A lot of photographers. A lot of fun. I like how you're talking about so nonchalantly. That's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And how's the food? Food, well, the, 
There was one year my daughter was really, really little, and we I lost pretty early on, and we didn't stay for dinner. Oh, uh, yeah, it's I great. Mean, I mean, the after parties, <laughs> they do a whole thing afterwards, and uh, parties. Yeah, and now that I think the Creative Arts Awards recently are, they used to be in the same place. It was just a week before, or a couple of days before. Now I think they're like they, it's a whole different thing, and yeah. that's a televised deal and some stars or something. Yeah. It must be like a great like. It's it a lot yeah. of fun. Yeah, I'll tell you oh what. The gosh. most, the best part is just getting nominated. That's yeah. exciting when you oh find my that. Gosh. That's pretty exciting. Yeah. Because how many how many weeks in between getting nominated in the actual actual mm. award? I think it was a bit. Because good. Yeah. So that that must be a great. You get year. to enjoy that because it's even and more they, fun. they do a dinner like they have yeah. or like a mixer where oh. all the people that are nominated and that's pretty fun. And because you don't know who won or whatever, it's like. You're yeah. like, you know, it's, everybody wants yeah, 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 exactly. to no, they that don't. Is, that is, that is the thing. That's victorious. It's true. Yeah. I mean, that, that really, it's you a must cliche, be but yeah, like pretty walking exciting. all the restaurants. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Should I, I remember my daughter, the my last time I got nominated, she was telling everybody that I was aminated. So, <laughs> whatever that means. Is your daughter in the industry as well? Because I know one of your sons. Uh, my oldest son, Danny, is an editor. And wow. uh, my other two, Colin and Claire, are uh, are both graphic designers. Unbelievable in the business. No, nope, they're doing. They do graphic design for you know all kinds of things, branding. And wow, got it. Wow. Incredible. And they're all working. So they're third generation Hollywood. <laughs> well, Danny is. Oh, no, they're all here. They're all here now. Unbelievable. Yeah, which is wow. great because they'd all gone to school. Danny went to UCLA film school the other two went to one went to school of visual arts and my daughter went to pratt so oh, well two cool. in the east coast yeah wow. east coast and so then they stayed i think ultimately they all were there about 10 years which is what uh, got us to move to connecticut because by then i was freelancing as a director and I thought well we kept an apartment here so if i got a gig back in la i'd just come back home and we had a car because claire didn't take a car to new york and that was working out fine and we were in connecticut but that just, I mean, I don't want to go into all that. But it was just a little too isolated. And then people started drifting once COVID hit. Everybody kind of moved back. All right, so I'm just curious without thinking. So if someone said to you today, hey, you can either, we're going to move you right now to Connecticut for the next 10 years or you're you're here. Forget the business. Where, where oh, we're, we're really happy to be back yeah, here. The weather alone, right? The weather. But it's cold right now back then. And, you know, we're, we love where we are. We're in Pasadena now, which is so different than... Uh, anywhere else. Brentwood. I love it. Yeah. You used to live in Brentwood. Yeah. And Brentwood actually felt a lot like Pasadena yeah, does to yeah. us now. It's not the same as when I was a kid. It was a really pretty look, laid back, kind of quiet, you know, sort of West Side suburb. But now it's gotten, you know, <laughs> not only not only incredibly expensive, but it's just a different vibe. Yeah. Well, I have a running joke with Alec. I was like, anytime I like connect with you on the phone, you're like moving to a new I know. We're oh, you know, like, moved to Chicago like during COVID and then all this. Stuff. And they say moving is one of the most stressful things. Yeah, and I can tell you, Mark, it absolutely is. Well, yeah. <laughs> and you don't want to do it anymore. Yeah, so you're done. I can say, I like to you. Now, yeah, we moved, we moved from here to Connecticut and then Chicago for two years. How, how is living in Chicago? People are so friendly. Oh, yeah. Well, my wife has a ton of family back there. and We'd spent a lot of time there over the years. As our kids were moving all over the place. I thought, let's just move to Chicago because might as well. Yeah. We have a lot of family there and that would be in the hub, but um, it's cold. Yeah. <laughs> and I think last winter when Tammy slipped on the ice and fell, she looked at me and she went, I just go back to California. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. But so now that you're here, like what's next? Like what's like, what, what well, I, it's weird. Cause my, 
you know, when we moved from Chicago, I was working on Gossip Girl as an editor and on the second season at that point remotely. So I just continued once we got here and I just finished that right before the holidays and that's not coming back, but I, that would have been a New York gig anyways. So, you know, I'm looking for a new gig, but everything's a little, it'll happen. Kind of the question I always ask our, you know, our podcast guests is this is our 30th anniversary podcast in a way. Um, that's really cool. And congratulations. Thank you. Yes. Thanks to him. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's a big um, deal. It hasn't, you know, hasn't always been easy. So I'm not saying is where there's a will, there's a way. Friends have to take risks, take chances. So I always ask our podcast guests, can you name one instance of like you took a risk, you took a chance against all the odds. Maybe people were like, you're so stupid for doing it that way. And then it paid off. Okay. I can give you an example. It's like, the, it's probably not the best one, but I've got a perfect example for that. The year we did the CSI pilot, which I cut, it was the last show that got green light to be made into a series or to, to do shoot period to do the pilot. And that was the year the fugitive was the hot show for CBS. And I got offered the fugitive and then they picked up CSI and I decided to take CSI. And that was, I don't know if you remember, but the fugitive was like, that was the buzz show. That was all the money and promotion was going into that. And my, I had some friends of mine who were in the business. So we're saying, you're nuts. You should do the other one. This, this probably, you know, May not last. And when I had them up, I got a weird feeling. But, uh, <laughs> you went with your gut. I went with my gut. So what, was, what was your gut? Like, I just, what? I thought there was something about it. It just kind of felt right. And I'm a Billy Peterson fan. You were excited. And I was excited about it. I thought, I want to work on this show, you know? And if wow. it doesn't go, I'll, find, I'll get another job. Yeah. Wow. And that's it short, short, it kind of, it really paid off. It, it elevated your career, would you say? I absolutely wow. that, that, that opportunity. Then I, I that's how I ended up directing. So yeah. incredible! It's one of those kind of cool things that happened. Lastly, I know you have your own podcast. I do. I was hey. going to bring that up. Oh my gosh! You talk a little bit about that. Yeah, yeah, actually, and I think it's interesting. If anybody, especially people that are doing your classes, actors that are interested in other elements of the business, I'm trying to. You know, a lot of people I know that went to film school, they never talk to you about how to get your career started. Everyone wants to be a director, a writer, a producer, and that's it. But there are so many other jobs in the industry. So I'm trying to open this up and get people to tell their stories about how they got started. But I'm, the, my latest one is a production designer. I've interviewed an agent, writers. You know, I've got a couple of people lined up, probably coming up this week since I'm not working. I'm trying to book a few of these. I want to talk to location managers and cinematographers and get everybody to tell their story, how they got started, how they got inspired to be part of the industry. It's called The Crew List. Well, and you can find it on you Spotify, can find it on Spotify yeah. Apple. I love it. And it's pretty much like an encyclopedia of like everything in the industry. Really. A, definitely a niche thing. And so, and it's just a labor of love. There are no advertisers. There's no money involved. It's just a, it's a fun, I think, if you're interested. It's uh, not only me interested. I actually am curious about the one where you do with the. Uh, you, you have one on. What is the expression of the, the person in charge of guns? Oh no! <laughs> yes. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I want to hear that. One. You got to get somebody on that. One. Wonderful <laughs> prop master that yeah. I'm hoping to to oh, yeah, corral, yeah. who's also incredibly entertaining. Michael Lindsay is a wonderful prop master and just a fun guy, and he's he's on my list. So I'm going to try to get him. I have a last, last question because I, I, I was, I, it was a question. I didn't want to ask it. So saving it for the end, we can edit it out. And <laughs> you don't want to answer, you know, you don't have to, but you brought up the Nepo babies 
thing. Yeah. And I know, you know, your dad was in the industry and was successful and that, you know, uh, your son is in, in the business. So curious to hear about your feelings on, on that whole thing, because, you know, even throughout this episode, you talk a lot about how like the amount of work it took for you to break in and all the stuff, you know, like being an apprentice and shadowing and, and your passion for for the, the craft almost. I, I can't deny that obviously I was exposed to this because of my father. And uh, I was able to, I had access that other people don't. And that's a huge job. Well, like, you know, in any field that goes on. Absolutely. Yeah. Police officer, fire politician. Sure. Yeah. So, so, yeah. So that, I think, I, I acknowledge that. I have no, and it absolutely made a difference. I wouldn't have gotten to know Frank Curiosity, who was the editor who let me hang out in his cutting room if he hadn't been a friend right. of the families. But beyond that, I mean, it, you still have to, and it's a, you know, it sounds like a cliche, but you can get your foot in the door, but you still have to be able to do it. Yeah. And at that point, if, you know, if you don't have it, it you're not going to get it. Yeah. And, and I want to add to that, that there's a guy out there whose father didn't have, but you know, once again, where there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, okay, great. Do you add your story? But, you know, if someone really wants it, they can go for and it. I, I think that's sort of the, that's kind of the idea behind my podcast too, is that you can get a job in the end. I mean, there are ways in, and I want people to tell their story about how did you get started? And some of them are fascinating. A lot of people came from left field into what they're doing now. Yeah. Like, like that, uh, the one guy we interviewed, uh, yes, executive producer on Blue Blood or something was a police officer. <laughs> well, that's would track, right? <laughs> they're probably glad to have them there. So like, I, have you had conversations like, 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 let's say your son, like you probably gave him advice, like, Hey, I can, you know, maybe help you a little bit, but like, if you're not good, you're not going to be back for, you know, the second episode or, or stuff like that. I mean, he just had, uh, in my son's case, and he's actually one of the interviews I did on the podcast, because this was during COVID. So just to test out, once I learned how to make a podcast, he was my guinea pig. And it's actually an interesting story because he went to film school and he he forged a career doing a lot of freelance stuff. And uh, he's on the cusp of joining the union now, but he's working and doing a lot of freelance stuff out here in L.A. Yeah, but he went to New York um, a little bit of everything. Okay. He started out doing these, you know, video packages for, you know, whoever would hire him. And he was kind of a one man band. He was shooting stuff, cutting it. That's another pathway that you can have a career doing that if you love making film doing all kinds of different things. So, yeah, I mean, I just tried to encourage him. I think he, he's really talented and it was just fun to watch him kind of blossom. But I, I also know that, you know, the last thing people want is to have that sense that they're getting guided into something. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if dad thinks it's a good idea, maybe it's not. Right. <laughs> that kind no, of that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Until he, I mean, he's old enough now that that's not a thing anymore. Now we can talk shop and, you know, it's a blast. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't done it yet, grab the Backstage Pass. You've got to get the Backstage Pass. There's behind the scenes footage. We've taken the biggest takeaways from the episode and written them down for you. There's also tools and resources to help move your career forward. It's the easiest way to turn this podcast into a tool for your career, as opposed to something you just listen to as you're doing the dishes.